Welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Barbara Sondheimer, author of the novel Victor's Blessings, a meticulously researched tale of a half-Osage Union soldier torn between honor, duty, and perhaps the most difficult human emotion of all, forgiveness. By the door to her left, a rhinoceros head was mounted on a stone block, its two horns raised to the roof in an expression of agony. On the other side of the door, a giant iron bell stood by a telescope, while above on the wall on either side, swords were fanned out in violent sun shapes. Ahead, a pair of red velvet curtains led deeper into the house and were held apart by two baby bears, stuffed and set upon their hind legs, each holding a silver salver in its paws, as though proffering or begging. Through them, she could see further on again, above a staircase that climbed into mystery, a vast stained glass window that cast blobs of yellow, pink and blue light down on the preposterous collection of objects. But it's a very passive role, really, isn't it? When you think you know, that they were so rich, they probably could have done anything they wanted. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Emily Howerkin, author of The Glorious Guinness Girls. And I just, I'm really, I'm very happy writing, so I don't know, I always say I'm not doing any more, you know, book a year kind of thing, and then I find that I say yes. Emily Howerkin is a journalist and author. She has written features for the Sunday Independent for 15 years, as well as Image Magazine, Condé Nast Traveler, and Women and Home. She was also editor of the Dubliner Magazine. Emily's first book, a memoir titled How to Really Be a Mother, was published in 2013. She is also the author of the novels The Privileged, White Villa, the Outsider, and The Blamed, as well as two best-selling novels about the Guinness Sisters, The Glorious Guinness Girls and The Guinness Girls, A Hint of Scandal. She lives in Dublin with her family. Today, I'll be talking with her about her Guinness Girls novels. So for listeners who aren't familiar, could you start by telling us about the Guinness Girls and how you became so interested in their story? Absolutely. So, the Guinness girls, the Guinness family, which people, I presume listeners, will mostly know from the beer 
And indeed, the great-great-grandfather of the girls that I write about is the original Arthur Guinness, who set up the brewery and began brewing this black beer, which made him rich and it made his children and his children's children even richer. So that by the time the three girls who I write about, who are Eileen and Maureen and Una Guinness, were born at the very beginning of the 1900s, they were a fabulously rich family, also a very large family. There are brewing Guinnesses, there are banking Guinnesses, and there are clerical Guinnesses. It's a huge family. And these three in particular, I find very fascinating because unlike some of the other family members, they were very rooted in Ireland. Their upbringing was certainly until the age of 17 when they went to London for like the ridiculous you know, presentation at court to the Queen. They grew up on the outskirts of Dublin in a house called Glenmaroon, um, which is still there. And so they had what I've always been very fascinated by, which is the kind of the foot in both camps, one foot in Ireland and then one foot in the UK. And they lived very long lives. Um, you know, the last of them to die died in 1998. So, you know, they kind of spanned almost the whole of the 1900s, which means obviously that they took in, you know, the great upheaval of that century, there are two world wars. Um, you know, they lived through the kind of 1920s, which is the period in which I set the first book that I wrote about them, which is called The Glorious Guinness Girls. And then the 1930s, which is the period in which this book, Mummy Darlings, is set. And this is the period in their lives where they have gone from being kind of, you know, very giddy young women doing the London season to all of them being married and starting married life and motherhood. So they're kind of a prism for me to look at those things in the lives of women in that part of, um, you know, of our time, the 1930s, and also then to look at their own individual stories because I just found them really fascinating. I started writing about them as a journalist, which uh, I was for many years, and I wrote about them and their kind of extended family in many capacities because you cannot be Irish and you can't live in Ireland without finding Guinness coming up absolutely everywhere. It is a huge part of our social history, uh, you know, like Guinness houses, Guinness contributions to art and architecture and public life are really, you know, kind of deeply entwined with the creation of the modern Irish state. And so for me, I really wanted, you know, kind of a deep look at their lives and then also through their lives at the lives of very privileged women of the era that they were living through. So it sounds like as a journalist, you must have known an awful lot about them before you started to tell their story through fiction. And in order to do so, you have this character named Fliss. Uh, can you tell us about how you came up with, with Fliss and, and why you used her to tell the story? Absolutely. Uh, yes, I did know a lot about them, but there is obviously a difference. Of course, there's a huge difference between knowing the external factors of people's lives, you know, the where, when, what, who and how, uh, as recorded publicly. And then the idea of, you know, looking into their inner lives, their thoughts, you know, their kind of imaginative lives. And even though I'm really clear about the fact that these books that I have written are novels, they are not history books, they're very, very based in the kind of verifiable circumstances, the actual history of these women's lives. But what I really wanted was somebody 
who could look at them from the outside, who could look at the privilege and the wealth that they had from the perspective of somebody who doesn't have those things and who therefore would be much better able to query those things, to understand them and to kind of look deep into them from a different vantage point. I figured that these, the Guinness girls, Maureen, Eileen and Una, were too young really to, and, and too protected, too privileged, to have re any real perspective themselves or any real understanding of just how different their lives were to the lives of most people. So I created these purely inventive characters. In the first novel, The Glorious Guinness Girls, it's Fliss, and then in the second one, in Mummy Darlings, it's Kathleen, who are roughly similar in that they aren't from the kind of background that the Guinness girls are from. They're from much humbler origins, and yet they move into the world of the Guinness girls. They travel with them as companions and friends, and they can see what the Guinness girls do and where they go. They're privy to many of the things that happen in their lives, but always with this perspective that allows them to interrogate what it is that they're looking at. Um, you know, and see the downsides as much as the upsides, because, I mean, I don't know if it's true of all privileged lives, but certainly of these three, it does not protect you from tragedy. You know, terrible things can happen even to people who seem to have everything. And in the case of the Guinness Girls, it did. And you say that these are not history books, but certainly they take place during a very active historical period, especially in Europe when a lot was going on. Can you talk about how you were, like the kind of research you had to do and how you inserted some of that history into the backdrop of their story? Absolutely. So in fact, that is another reason why I have the invented characters. The Guinness girls did not engage themselves politically on any level. They were, in fact, surprisingly indifferent to the politics around them. So firstly, as very young women, they were indifferent to the fight for Irish freedom, which was happening at exactly the same time as they were growing into 17, 18 year olds. Um, you know, they were literally right there at the creation of the Irish state. In fact, they apparently, when they were very young, witnessed the 1916 rising. They witnessed some of the, you know, the, the, the smoke rising above the trees in the center of Dublin from the battle that was being waged for Irish independence at the time that they were, you know, playing with their massive collection of toys in their house in Glenmaroon. So for me, that was really fascinating. And I really wanted to bring the people, bring them into the story, even though they didn't actually ever investigate it themselves. And the same thing then during the 1930s when they are living in the UK, and there is this incredible polarization of English society, ordinary people's society. There is the rise of fascism and socialism. And they are hurtling towards, obviously, at the end of that decade, 1940, came war with Nazi Germany. But some of the issues were being played out in the UK before war was ever declared. And again, for me, this was a fascinating example and a fascinating kind of insight into a really turbulent time in English history that I really wanted to be in the novels because this is what was happening. There were hunger marches, as they were called, who there was like tens of thousands of people taking to the streets and marching because they could not 
survive. They could not feed their families on what they were then being paid in very low paid working class jobs. It simply wasn't enough to stop their kids from suffering the diseases of malnutrition. So there was all of this unrest that the Guinness girls themselves were blithely indifferent to. And so the characters, the invented characters that I've created, Fliss and Kathleen, also serve that purpose. They go between the worlds of actual politics and real people's real lives and the concerns that they had, and then the worlds of privilege that the Guinness girls were inhabiting. And therefore, I was able to bring in all of this research that I had done, all of this reading around the kind of social events and the political events of the 1920s and 30s that I just didn't feel the books would be in any way right without. So I get the feeling that Fliss and Kathleen are almost journalists in their own right, kind of like an extension of, of yourself. Do you feel that way at all? I do. I Actually, I do. I think that you're completely right. And um, they are. And I think that what they both have, which I guess is what every journalist and probably every writer has to have, is a great deal of curiosity. They're very curious about what people do, but also why people do things. And they are also both of them. And um, they are both kind characters, which... I think unless you're going to get into the kind of, you know, the very interesting world of unstable narrators or a narrator with an agenda, I think that you kind of, as a reader, I think you want to rely on getting the information of a book and about the characters in the book from somebody who you trust. And therefore, like the best journalists, they have a kind of impartiality. They have a sense of perspective, as I've said, because they did not, they don't come from the world that they're observing. And so they're able to see, you know, the ways in that world, in which that world is like completely um, peculiar, you know, to the vast majority of normal people. So they have that kind of vantage point and that sense of perspective. And then they have, you know, they have the curiosity, but it's not a curiosity that is motivated by bad feeling or resentment. You know, they are actually quite well disposed towards these three glorious Guinness girls. And so they're able to look at what they do and talk to them and discuss it with them and be involved in it. And, you know, in their marriages, which were not happy and in their experiences of motherhood, which were largely not happy either and report back on those things to the reader. I'm curious to know your thoughts a little bit more on the the political indifference of the Guinness girls. Do you think that it Part of it was a result of the time they grew up in where opportunities were so limited. And, and do you think they would have used their privilege um, to in another way had they had they grown up in, in another period of time? That is such a good question. So I think partly, yes, but only partly. So like an awful lot of young women at the time that they were born. So Eileen was born in 1904. And Maureen was born in 1908 and Una was born in 1910. So at that time, it was pretty common not to educate women. You know, boys were educated, boys were sent to public school from families like that. And they were sent to university and girls were not. So it's not untypical that they weren't educated. But I find that even by the standards of the time, and even by, in comparison with 
other women from their kind of background, they, to me, were surprisingly apolitical. I mean, if you think, you know, leaving aside the question of Irish independence, which was obviously such a huge thing for any Irish person, but if you look at the kind of evolving situation for women at the time, you know, you're coming out of the First World War and you're going right into this era in which women were demanding opportunities that they had never had and rights that they had never had. They were agitating for, you know, full democracy, for full suffrage for women. And the Guinness girls were not involved in that at all. They, it seems to me, everything that I've been able to find out about them, they seemed very content to adopt the kind of role that their section of aristocratic society offered them, which was the role of muse, of wife, of mother, of hostess. They were all of those things. And, you know, they obviously did, to a certain degree, they were effective in terms of being hostesses and exercising that kind of soft power. For example, Una in her life was an important part of an Irish artistic scene. She was the hostess who gathered an enormous number of Irish writers and painters together and showered them with like very lavish hospitality and allowed them an opportunity to meet in this sort of salon that she set up and talk to each other and discuss ideas. And that is important. And there were very, very, very few people in Ireland doing that at the time. So that is a valid and important role. But it's a very passive role, really, isn't it? When you think you know, that they were so rich, they probably could have done anything they wanted. And yet they seem to have chosen not to want to be involved on really any political level whatsoever. They seem to show very, very little interest and half typical of women of their time, but half not. You know, as they say, a lot of their friends with the same kind of background were much more engaged. Hey listeners, this is Colin Mustville, the host of the podcast, and I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you more about this fantastic historical novel, Victor's Blessings by Barbara Seinheimer. In the novel, we meet Victor Gant. Victor Gant's life is abundant with blessings. Although the son of an Osage slave, he is a valuable member of the charming French and German community of St. Genevieve, Missouri. As the town blacksmith, he is well-respected, well-liked, and makes a proper living. But blessings can be fleeting. When the Civil War erupts, Victor will have to make choices, torn between doing what's best for his family or following his heart, to finally bestowing an agonizing blessing of his own. Victor's blessing is a journey from the marbled patent offices of Washington, D.C., to the infamous Andersonville prison, to the Battle of Wilderness, where in order for Victor to keep one promise, another must be broken. Thanks for taking this break with me to talk about Victor's Blessings. I hope you'll at least check out the novel. Head to the Goodreads page. It's getting some great reviews. Head to the author's website, uh, sondheimerwrites.com, and just take a look and see if it interests you. Thanks again, and now back to the interview. Well, we've talked a lot about the history here and about the the story of the Guinness Girls, 
but let's talk a little bit more about about you. Um, you're quite a, a prolific writer at this point. Um, can you talk about what it's been like the last few years, just t- churning out novel after novel and mm. what that, that workload is like for you? It's pretty intense. Uh, it certainly isn't what I thought it would be when I started wanting to write novels, which I mean, really, I probably wanted to do for my whole life. Initially, you know, novels as a reader, novels are what I absolutely loved an entire childhood spent reading and loving to read. And then I think kind of gradually moving into getting the confidence to do it. So in the beginning, it's kind of easier to be a journalist than it is to be a writer in that there's an actual job for you, you know, that you can go and do. And, you know, you start and you write short pieces and bit by bit you build, um, you know, you build a reputation and you build faith in yourself and you write longer pieces and then longer again. And that was what I did. And then, you know, eventually I kind of reached the stage where I thought, okay, I'm just going to do this. And I started writing and I wrote a novel that, you know, had a peculiar gestation and just never really came to anything and then I wrote another novel and I stuck it in a drawer and then I wrote one and I was reasonably happy with it and I sent it to an agent and then I got a publisher and then I discovered that if you write commercial fiction which is what I write then uh, your publishers pretty much expect you to have a book every single year and in a way I like that because you know I write kind of I like I like working I love writing and you know I'm really happy writing books and I like working quite fast and I like deadlines but then at the same time you know I have three children who have been kind of growing up along with the books coming out so that's quite intense and um, I have also kept up my career as a journalist you know because I like it and also because it pays the bills and it's a weekly series of deadlines so I do that as well so yes there are times where I kind of go you know particularly when I just finished a new book I think right that's just like running a marathon and I am not doing that again for a long time but then you know what like a few weeks go by and an idea that I've had in my head just kind of itches at me and I just start wanting to write it down and see what happens with it and I just, I'm really, I'm very happy writing. So I don't know. I always say I'm not doing any more, you know, book a year kind of thing. And then I find that I say yes to another contract and another book. And so far, so far, I've been happy doing that. Well, I can relate to the analogy of running a marathon. I've run 12. and Oh, my God. <laughs> Every time, yes, I can understand that feeling of, ah, okay, I'm not. There's no way I'm doing this again. <laughs> you see, I have never run one marathon. And I can really, I mean, there must be, right, that moment where you go, oh, my God, why why did I say, why, what, maybe mile five or something? Why did I say I was going to do this? Yeah. Uh, well, I'm curious, um, coming from your background as a, a journalist and an editor, um, do you have a hard time switching hats between creative writing and editing? Do you like? Is it hard for you to get into that creative writing mode and just letting the writing flow? It can be. Yeah, I kind of need to. I need to kind of prep um, when I am going into creative writing. I don't find so if I have started a book and I'm into writing it, it's not so bad. I tend to basically do the creative writing first thing in the morning. So 
if I have a couple of different things to write during the day, say a piece of journalism and the creative writing, I'll always start with the creative writing. I just think that it works better. It flows better. First thing in the morning, do a few hours of that. And then it's quite easy to switch from that into the journalism. It's less easy. If I have an early, early deadline for journalism, I find it much harder to switch from that into creative writing later in the day. But if I have been doing only journalism for a while and I'm due to kind of start writing creatively again, then I do need, I need to do a palate cleanse of some kind. You know, sometimes it's just taking a few days off and doing no writing at all. Sometimes it's going away. Like I find going on writer's retreats really helpful. You know, take a week out and go somewhere where your only purpose is to write creatively. Um, change of scene just kind of sets off a slightly different train of thought. That is really effective. Um, you know, or, or other things that I tell myself work, you know, like kind of a few days of hiking or, you know, swimming a lot, or it's just something that really is not related to writing at all. And then I sort of think I'm ready to start. But I mean, that's it. There are so many days where, you know, I sit down at my desk already, you know, I've given hours, I've cleared my desk for hours of creative writing and I just sit down and write awful rubbish, like awful. And you just have to, you just have to suck it up, right? You just have to go, okay, today I'm writing awfully and just not panic and, you know, believe that you will write better in a little while. For writers who are listening, can you tell us what have been some of your favorite writing retreats? Ah, yes. Well, actually, so, I mean, that's an easy one because there's only one uh, that I have been on so far. So it is a place in um, in County Monaghan, which is about a two hours drive from Dublin. It is in a little tiny little heartland townland called Anna McCarrick, and it's the Tyrone Guthrie Centre. So he basically left his house to the state um, if it was to be a writer's retreat and he left a certain amount of money to for the upkeep of it um, and the state then invests also from through the Arts Council and so it is subsidised which means it doesn't cost an impossible amount of money to go and stay there. It's an incredibly lovely old house and it is, I don't know, is it maybe 14 or 15 bedrooms and then a few cottages so at any one time, there might be kind of, you know, 15 or 20 artists who might be writers or poets or visual artists or dancers or musicians. And they are all there for the same reason, which is to work creatively or even just to think and to be inspired. And it's in the middle of the countryside and it is incredibly beautiful. It's surrounded by forest with a huge lake right on the doorstep. And it is just amazing. You don't need to do anything about your own meals. The food is amazing and it, you know, it's there for you. So you literally have no excuse. All the things that take you away from writing in the normal course of your life, you know, I think I have to pick up the kids, I need to make them dinner, you know, I need to do some kind of housework. None of that applies. You literally get up in the morning and you work and you eat. And then at dinner, you know, you all meet and you like discuss which is lovely. You talk to people about what they're working on and how it's going for them. And, you know, there are so many, as they say, different types of artists there that you just get this kind of wonderful community feeling of everybody striving to create. And it's just, it's, I just find it amazing. It's really wonderful. Well, I wonder before we end here, if we, if you could talk a little bit about your battle with mouth cancer, you were very vocal about it in your blog and, and in speaking. Why have you been so vocal about it? 
Two reasons why I was so vocal about it. So that, I was diagnosed in 2015. I was completely out of the blue. I mean, I was, you know, was I 44 or something at the time? Um, you know, I was young, really, and uh, completely not the profile of person who gets mouth cancer, which traditionally has been a cancer that affects much older men and generally men who have a history of drinking and smoking. So I am none of those things. I'm not a man. I was not old. I'm not a drinker or a smoker. Um, and yet I got mouth cancer. And the reason I got it is because I was HPV virus is a virus that causes several types of cancer, most commonly cervical cancer, but also this mouth cancer. And the profile of people being diagnosed with HPV-related mouth cancer was very much changing the usual statistics around mouth cancer. So I felt it was really important to say to other people who would never, like me, never have expected that mouth cancer would be a thing that they could possibly get, to just be aware that weirdly, yes, younger people and women and people who are not drinkers or smokers were getting mouth cancer. And to just, you know, like never ignore symptoms um, because the last thing you want to be is the person who pitches up late with something like cancer of any kind. You want to be the person who gets in there and they go, okay, we've caught this at an early stage and this is very treatable, which is exactly what happened to me. So that was part of the reason, you know, just tell people this can happen. Be aware of it and be checked for it if you need to. And then the other thing, the honest truth is that writing is how I process any of the things that happened to me and particularly the bad things that happened to me. And that was very devastating. My kids were very young. My youngest was four, I think, at the time. And, you know, the eldest was 12. Um, and it was it was a really hard time in my life. It was a really horrible treatment. It's quite short, but it's really intense. And, you know, the kind of side effects are considerable and the possibility of long-term side effects, like never being able to swallow again, um, exist. And, you know, I was unbelievably lucky in that none of those awful things happened to me. But it was a very difficult time in my life. And, you know, I dealt with it by writing. I would have written about it, whether that writing was published or not. And the fact that the newspaper that I worked for at the time, once they knew that I was happy, and I was happy to talk about this, and, you know, to kind of be out there talking about it, they were happy to publish it. So we just did it. I wrote a letter, a kind of a, a diary, a week for, I think it was two months, and um, just detailing the things that happened to me and how I felt about them and, you know, the kind of fallout, the emotional and psychological fallout from, you know, what happens when you get a really serious diagnosis like cancer and how you cope with it. And, you know, it was like a really big thing in my life, probably for kind of two years at least, because there was a long recovery period afterwards. And I would still, and I still do get messages from people who are diagnosed with that same cancer and, you know, who have read something that I've written online and end up emailing me and asking me, you know, how things went and, you know, what can you say to somebody except, look, it's really, really hard. But, you know, in my case, everything ended really well. The treatment was really successful. You know, I touch wood every single time I say this, but there has been no reoccurrence. My consultants don't expect there to be any reoccurrence because HPV-related mouth cancer is far more treatable than the more traditional kind. 
So it's not a big part of my life anymore, thank God. But I still, I've never stopped feeling incredibly, incredibly lucky for the way that all worked out, as well as feeling really quite unlucky to have ever got it in the first place. Sure. Well, it's just so important and valuable, you know, what you did there to share your story. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. Well, as, as we talked about, you're a very busy writer, so I'm sure you've got plenty on your plate. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? I can. So I have just, um, I have just delivered the first edits and, you know, there will be, there's the first draft and then there's the first edit and then there's a second edit that I will get back in a while. So I'm still kind of at the early stages of it, but this is a continuation. This is going to sound really, really pompous now, but it's, it's still the kind of, the Guinness Girls universe, if I can say that without sounding like a complete idiot. Um, so it is a different branch of the family. It's not Eileen, Maureen and Una. It is their cousin, Honor Guinness, and her youngest sister, Bridget. Honor Guinness married a really fascinating American called Henry Chips Channon, who you may have heard of. He was much more involved and much more significant in English public life because he lived in England and he was an MP for a while and he married Honor Guinness who was incredibly rich and he was so incredibly ambitious. He climbed his way right to the top of the British aristocracy. He became great friends with the Prince of Wales. He was really kind of industrious about promoting the marriage between the Prince of Wales and Wallace Simpson. And then that obviously ended badly in an abdication and he never quite recovered, but he kind of continued sort of, you know, scheming and knowing everybody who was important. So I have written a book about that relationship, Honor and Chips and the Prince of Wales and Wallace Simpson and all of the people who kind of turned around the orbit of these people. Um, and that is called A Question of Honor, The Other Guinness Girl. And that is actually published here in Ireland and not yet in America. But the one I've just written is the point at which the lives of Honor Guinness and Chips Channon intersect with the family of John F. Kennedy. So Joe Kennedy, as you undoubtedly know, was the, you know, the ambassador to Britain in 1938. And he came over here with most of his family not so much his older son, Joe, and JFK, who was at Harvard at the time, but the younger members of the family, including his daughter, Kathleen, who was called Kick Kennedy, who was a huge success on that kind of aristocratic British social scene. And she married the Duke of Devonshire, who then died very tragically in the Second World War. And then she died very tragically just a few years later. But there's this really interesting point in 1938 where the lives of the Kennedys intersect with the lives of um, Chips Channon and Honor Guinness and Honor's younger sister, Bridget. So that is the, uh, that's the kind of background to my latest novel, or the one that I'm just writing at the moment. Well, those all sound like very worthy additions to the Guinness Girls universe. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it's, an, it's a lot of fun. That I can tell you for sure. It's a, the research and the writing. It's so much fun. Well, Emily, congratulations on Mummy Darlings and on all your success. And thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for having me on. I have enjoyed the conversation enormously. Thank you.
Well, that sounds fantastic. And I have to admit, um, you caught me off guard and I, t- I didn't stop to think, yes, we have the Guthrie Theater. Aha, okay. So my, my geography is bad and I was not 100%. So it is in Minneapolis. That's brilliant. Yeah, and we just call it the Guthrie. So I Aha, okay. never considered who, who it was actually <laughs> named after. Well, the yes, Tyrone Guthrie. Um, and please don't ask me too much more about it because you'll find that I just draw a giant blank. 